The Lord be with you. Thank you. First Corinthians chapter 9. Paul begins, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. For the Corinthians, this letter resolved a lot of controversies that were fomenting among them. And Paul is addressing those controversies. But we've been reading it as a primer in things unseen. Now, this idea makes some people uncomfortable. Uh, I, I notice that there's a certain mindset that does not care for poetry because poets don't use words literally. They'll use them figuratively or metaphorically or by way of analogy. Or they'll put two thoughts together that don't go together, but in smashing them to, to, together create a new experience of language because poetry is more about experience than it is um, about uh, clever meanings. So um, the people who are uncomfortable with poetry and with the invisible uh, figure that what we can see is real and what we cannot see is not real. And so for them, being a Christian is defined by what they do. They go to church, they read their Bible, they share their faith, they support various ministries, and uh, in doing, they identify as Christians. For us, uh, being a Christian is, is who we are. That, um, and you're okay, no one cares. That's all right. Um, it, it's who we are, or what we are becoming. We are becoming followers of Jesus. We are becoming children of God. We are becoming saints, though uh, I don't see any halos this morning. Uh, I still know that that's what God is working into us. He calls us his holy people, and holy is the same thing as saint. Holy when applied to a person, a saint. Anyway, faith has its own set of eyes. Paul said, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Um, the writer of Hebrews is explicit regarding faith sight. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Uh, and at this point, the writer of Hebrews is definitely a mystic and also uh, 
a quantum physicist because uh, quantum physics, wow, there's something going on today. <laughs> and I'm missing out because I don't have my phone with me. Uh, but uh, quantum physics tells us that our visible universe consists of invisible particles. And when I was in high school, you know, the, the furthest down I went into particles was atoms. And since then, it's gone down to, you know, much, much smaller particles. And these frame everything that exists. But what goes on at the level of quantum physics cannot happen at the level of our experience of the universe. Um, it's a whole different world when you get down there. So, so we live in two worlds at once, the one that we can see and the one that's invisible to us. Um, and so we're learning to see. This is, this is part of our spiritual development, really important part, is learning to, to see that other world. But it's, it's a faith sight. And it's not like any experience of sight or perception that we have. Um, the closest to it might be intuition. So what does Paul have to say today that's going to help us? Uh, to find out, I think we need to get a feel for the entire chapter. So I'm just going to run through what's here um, quickly. Um, we need to, first of all, get rid of the chapter break between chapter 8 and chapter 9. You know that uh, Paul did not write letters in chapters any more than you and I write letters in chapters. Well, sometimes I do, but... Uh, <clears throat> The, the longer emails. Uh, none of the Bible was written in chapter and verse. And so uh, in order to be able to find our way around in it, someone, you know, uh, 500, 600 years ago, devised the chapter and verse organization of scripture that we have now. But we have to ignore it sometimes. This thought... Uh, just is a run-on from last week, where he had shown them that sometimes Christians volunteer to forfeit their rights and that they do this out of love, that they may know they have rights, but love compels them to let go of their rights for the sake of someone else. <clears throat> he brought this lesson to his climax in in the last verse of chapter 8, where he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother or sister stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make them stumble. So that's him forfeiting his right to eat meat. Now, for Paul, this is an illustration. And for him, he may not have been able to have access to meat that often anyway, so it may not be a, a great loss to him, but he's just making the point because that's the point of the chapter. Uh, does a Christian have liberty to eat meat that's been offered to another deity in, in another temple before an idol? But he, he takes that idea of forfeiting his rights to an, a new level here. Uh, he carries the point forward 
by using himself as an example. And that's this whole chapter, chapter 9. It's one long statement regarding his rights as an apostle. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? He asks. In fact, he leads each step of his argument with questions. Uh, They're pointed questions. They're rhetorical questions because they, they have the answer contained in them. But this goes through the whole chapter, him asking questions. Am I not free? It seems, I think, that freedom and rights go together. It's not a coincidence that we have a Bill of Rights that's connected to our Constitution. It's all about what does a free citizen look like? And uh, so his, his first question has to do with his rights as an apostle. Okay, there are all kinds of disciples. Jesus had hundreds, even thousands of disciples, people who were sitting under his teaching and learning from him. He only appointed 12 apostles, and these men were chosen to be sent out into the world with his message. So he's He's prepping them, especially, to take over once he's gone. And uh, in, in the book of Acts, early on, it was determined that there were qualifications for an apostle. One had to be uh, a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, have I not seen our Lord Jesus <clears throat> And, um, and then he asks whether or not he's entitled to the same rights as the other apostles. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who had examined me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, the brothers of our Lord, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? For a living. They have these. They have these rights. These freedoms. Um, How come I don't? Apparently. uh, How come I don't? He, He comes to his central idea. When he mentions Barnabas. That unlike the other apostles. They did not derive. Their income from their ministry that sometimes Paul had to work with his own hands, he'll say. Uh, And his other occupation was a tent maker. So um, he's still asking questions, and he cites three examples. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So you have a soldier, uh, a farmer, and a shepherd. And it's built into what they're doing is uh, supporting their, their livelihood. 
out of the three, the soldier, the farmer, the shepherd, which one do you suppose matches Paul's situation the most? That's just food for thought. Um, his, his next questions take us into the law, an interesting place to go. In fact, I think this is kind of fascinating. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? Verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Okay, so here the ox is working away at um, treading out the grain. And uh, they weren't to muzzle it. The ox was allowed to eat some of the grain as it did its work. And Paul asks, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. Well, okay. Um, It seems like a strange way to interpret the commandment. The, The law contains these straightforward rules. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. Um, Its language uh, does not use metaphors. It It is technical language, not poetic. So for Paul to see this other meaning, when he asks, does God care for the oxen? My answer would be, well, yes, he does, obviously, um, he, he cares for sparrows. Uh, he cares for all of his creation. Um, all of it matters to him. But Paul is, is implying this wasn't written for the sake of oxen. It was written for our sake and that there's an analogy here, even though the law doesn't use analogies. So... Um, <clears throat> Paul is exercising some freedom here. Um, In his day, it was common for rabbis to allegorize the law, to find these kinds of lessons and meanings in the law. Uh, But I think of my attitude. No, he's not talking about us. He's talking about oxen. That's literally what it says. That's what it literally means. And now I'm being a technician. Right? Now I'm being an engineer. Um, I'm being the one with no imagination and very little creativity because my, my interest in technicalities do not inspire imagination or creativity. But Paul realizes that not everything is governed by the rules that we know. We know about gravity, uh, we know some of the laws of nature. We know about methods of interpretation. Uh, there's a whole school of philosophy called uh, hermeneutics that's dedicated to that. And it has some rather stellar names like Heidegger and Gadamer connected to it. But um, Paul is exercising some freedom here. And he gives us two more examples of similar situations the plowman and the thresher. Again, 
they benefit from the work that they do. They're like the ox. You know, we don't muzzle them. They're allowed to enjoy the fruit of their labors. In verse 11, I, I think we, we come to the climax of the chapter uh, in terms of Paul's argument. It's the crux of what he has to say. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Now, notice that the metaphor that he uses here is agricultural. It's planting and reaping. If we have sown the seeds of spirituality, is it a big deal if we reap from you material benefits? Now, he uses agriculture, but for me, this sounds more like a commercial transaction um, that I'm paying for services rendered. And I think that he's trying to avoid the marketplace uh, connection. Uh, okay, I'm going to make just one comment about this. Anyone who chooses ministry as a career option does not belong in ministry. I think you can, you can choose just about any other field. If, if it's money, if you want to make money, you can choose any other field and make money in it, but not ministry. Anyone who does ministry for the money does not belong. And I'll, I'll tell you that 90% of the ministers in the United States and closer to 100% of ministers in uh, underdeveloped nations do not receive anything or do not receive enough to live on uh, through their ministry. It's, um, I mean, for some people, it is. A, I was shocked one time. I was at, I used to go up to Claremont School of Theology and I'd shop in their bookstore up there and see what the liberals were studying. And um, some students had just come out of a class and uh, they were talking about the professor who was apparently more conservative than the other professors at Claremont. And, and they uh, were, they were criticizing him for, uh, for telling them that he felt they belonged in, at Fuller Seminary rather than Claremont, and, um, and emphasizing in their homiletics that their preaching and teaching uh, always had a biblical text. And this one girl was saying, well, what if I don't want to preach from a biblical text? What if I want to preach from a poem or from Scientific American or whatever? And uh, I was shocked because the way they were talking, I realized they were looking at going into ministry as their career choice. God chooses and calls people to ministry. And some of us are taken into it with claw marks all the way through the door. Um, but, he, but he gets those that he wants. He wanted Paul. And, and who would have guessed? 
Um, so I've always loved the way Paul called these people out. He says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Peddlers of God's word. Uh, anyway, the point that Paul is making in this passage here is this. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Well, Paul, he just let all the air out of the balloon. Uh, he, he's been building his case for his rights, and we've cared for you spiritually. Could you show us some care materially? This is how it works. And then he says, but don't do that. He says, we have not made use of this right. And later he'll say, and I'm not telling you these things to try to stoke that up. He had not taken advantage of the system, not with them. And now Paul asks questions again. This time he asks about the priest in the temple. And he says, don't you know that those who are employed in the, in the service of the temple receive their meals from what's offered as sacrifices in the temple? And, uh, and preachers also. He says that in, uh, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And he's referring to Jesus. And probably Jesus made a definitive statement like this. We don't have it that clear. Uh, there is in Matthew chapter 10, when he's sending his disciples out for the first time, he tells them, don't take anything with you. Don't, don't take a belt to collect gold or silver for the laborer is worthy of his hire or um, the laborer deserves his food. You'll be fed. People will take care of you. Just go out there and, and do the business of the gospel. So Paul's argument is the policy of the examples he gives of the law, of the priests in the temple, of Jesus' command. The policy is established of an even exchange, uh, spiritual services given and material benefits rendered. But again, he says, I have made no use of any of these rights. And um, he's not going over these things to elicit support. So we have, to, we have to hear what he's saying here. We have to see what he's doing. He's building this big argument, and then he's tearing it down. Now, briefly, um, the ancient Mediterranean world, especially the Greek and Roman cultures, were what we refer to as honor-shame cultures. And the more honor your family had, the more everyone in the family benefited from it and the higher status you had. Honor was more important than money. Uh, status in our culture tends to be around money. The car you can afford to drive, the house you can afford to live in, and, and so on. But then it was honor. And... It was not offensive 
for a person to boast his or her own virtues or achievements. Paul does some boasting here. They did not consider it bragging. Uh, and of course, they, they were not pleased if someone was arrogant about their boast. But if it was a real boast, um, it was like making a deposit in your honor account. This is like the, the social capital is honor. So um, they could boost their own uh, their own honor. This it's called the honor boast. And Paul says in uh, verse sixteen, "For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting." So, so he's not boasting that I'm a minister of the gospel. That he says, "For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel." He says, "I have to do this. There, there's no getting out of it." For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. So I've got to do it one way or another. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. I present the gospel free of charge. That's his boast. And he's not going to let anyone take that away from him. What Paul does next is he explains his strategic approach to ministry. He's got, he, this guy's all over uh, the known world, uh, except uh, Asia. He's not allowed to go. He's in Asia Minor, but he's not allowed to go above that. But he's all over the place, all over the map. And, and wherever he goes, there's, there's a particular way he approaches ministering to people in that area. Paul was bilingual. He may have been trilingual or multilingual. He was also bicultural. And that is as challenging as learning a foreign language really getting to know a foreign culture. And if you're in a foreign culture and you don't know it, you're inevitably going to make lots of mistakes because human cultures differ from each other. And here's his strategy. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. But then he qualifies that, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So if he's with really rigid religious people, he, is, he doesn't try to argue them out of it. He meets them where they are. And he speaks to them in their own context. He says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, 
that by all means, I might save some. And that's really important to keep in mind. Is well, what's your purpose here, Paul? What's, what's your goal? And he says, I want to win people. I want to save people. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. When I first came to Dana Point, well, I, I started a Bible study here. And then some years later, we started meeting on Sunday. And I only knew one way to do church on Sunday. Uh, and that's in a suit and tie. Uh, you, you dress up for God. Uh, that's, that's showing respect. I mean, there's all kinds of rationales for that. So one Sunday morning, I was preaching, and my, I, I hated wearing ties to begin with, and my neck was bothering me, so I just removed my tie, and everyone applauded. It was like, we're free. Uh, the ushers especially, um, they begrudgingly wore ties. I mean, they came barefoot, uh, but they still wore ties. Uh, you know, but now I realize I don't need to, I don't need to dress like this. A few years later, this man came to our church. Uh, there were a couple of people in the church who were, uh, he was their supervisor at work, and he, he was in a suit, and he made that suit look good. And it, was, it was tailored, and he, you know, he, he was like just a fine figure in his suit. And he came up to me after the service. He said, I noticed that, that you don't wear a suit. And I said, no, uh, not anymore. Uh, when I would drive around this area on Sundays, I'd realize the only other people in suits we're realtors and Mormons, and I'm not either one. Uh, and he said, well, isn't that a compromise? Aren't you compromising with this culture? And I said, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a compromise, uh, and one I'm willing to make. I said, you know, we have a number of negotiable issues here. We have a, a number of non-negotiable, and most of our negotiable issues are cultural. Our non-negotiable issues are theological. So no, I don't think I'm making any theological compromise in becoming all things to all people, but it is a, a cultural compromise. Um, Paul's strategy plays out in the book of Acts, and it's fascinating, I think it's fascinating to read, um, how when he was in the synagogue, he quoted scripture, he referred to Abraham as our father, he relied on, on the Jewish knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures, but when he spoke to Gentiles, he did not quote scripture. In Athens, he, he quoted from their own philosophers and poets. Paul, where's the Bible? You, know, and you couldn't find an evangelist in the United States today who's not going to be preaching from the Bible. Uh, Billy Graham, perhaps on some occasions, but 
you, you can see these, these two completely different sermons tailored to two different audiences, culturally very different, religiously very different. And he knew how to speak to both because he was bilingual, he spoke Greek and Hebrew, and he was bicultural. Um, years ago, it's probably 20 years ago, um, I, I published a book called There is a Season, and in it I said, because I like to quote great minds, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, Paul, that was, a, that was a brag, not a boast. Paul tailored his message and his lifestyle to his audience. He spoke to Jews in the context of their religion, culture, and history. He spoke to Gentiles in a much broader context. The content of his message was always the same, but it was packaged differently for each audience. Paul was careful to speak in terms that were most relevant to the culture and context of his audience. In every case, Paul's primary concern was winning and saving people through the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. If Paul made compromises to relate to people, his compromises were only cultural. He never compromised his integrity, theology, or the message of the gospel. In the last bit of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, Paul explains, uh, pardon me, he goes over the importance of self-discipline. Paul's life was more difficult than it needed to be because he did not hit the Corinthians up for money. He had, uh, pardon me, had he insisted on his rights, it would have made his life much easier. But his commitment to his mission would not allow him to do that. So he had to discipline himself. He had to discipline himself to sometimes missing a meal because he just did not have it to have a meal. Sometimes he had to discipline himself to work an outside job. Sometimes he had to discipline himself to be content to wear old, worn-out clothes. You know, whatever he suffered, whatever deprivations he suffered, he made those choices. And he had to discipline himself. He said, I, I pummel my body to, to keep it under control because it has desires that aren't going to be fulfilled given my strategy. It has needs that sometimes have to go unmet. And then he talks about athletes, how, how disciplined the athlete is. And we know about that don't we? I mean, when you read of Olympic athletes and their regimen, you know, getting up at four o'clock in the morning and training for four hours, having a bite to eat that is nutritious and not too filling because they're going right back into training for another four hours, that, that the discipline is, is strict. And they have to bring their needs and desires under control. I find it interesting that on the other hand, Paul sometimes asserted his rights as a Roman citizen, mostly 
to avoid being beaten. Um, a Roman citizen could not be beaten uh, without a trial. And that almost happened to him in the Fortress Antonia uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, one time he was beaten without a trial. And this was in Philippi. And the magistrates of the city uh, just thought that he was some kind of nuisance. And so um, the day after the severe beating that he and Silas took, uh, they sent a message to the jailer and said, okay, you can free those guys. And Paul, I'm sure he crossed his arms, and he said, oh, no. We're not leaving until we get an official apology from them, and they escort us out of jail and out of the city because we're Roman citizens. And when the magistrates of Philippi heard that, they panicked because they could be held account to Rome. This could go all the way back to Rome and their positions taken from them because of their violation. So, you know, if it's going to be to his benefit, I'm a Roman citizen, but not, I'm an apostle. There, there's a, this is years ago. There's a, a minister at Calvary Chapel. He had a son who's, even in elementary school, he's out of control. And um, one day, one of his Sunday school teachers uh, said to him, you know what? I just can't take your behavior anymore, and, and we're going to do something about it. This kid, kid said, do you know who my dad is? Oh, wow. You know, so that, that was Paul uh, regarding Roman citizenship. But uh, he chose to suffer rather than to assert his rights as an apostle. He says that he was willing, he and Barnabas were willing to endure anything We're willing to suffer whatever we have to suffer because of this decision. He says that he would rather die than give up his boast that he brings the gospel for free to people, you know, without charge. So why? Why was he willing to accept difficulty and discomfort that were not necessary. It's because the Corinthians were, as he said in verse 1, his workmanship. He was a spiritual craftsman. Uh, he, he was a spiritual midwife, and he was there to bring the life of God to them and see it birthed in them. And he says, you're my workmanship. So he's not doing this for the money. You know, there was a, a man who lived here in, in this area. He, he shaped surfboards for a living. And so someone would, uh, would order a board from him, and he was, he was famous for what he did, very skilled. And uh, every once in a while, a guy would come into his shop. He says, okay, if I watch you work on my, work on my board. He says, yeah, sure. And more than one man said to him, you know, I wish I loved my job as much as you love yours. What a wonderful place in life if you love what you do and if you're doing it for the love of it. 
rather than just for money. And, and this was Paul. He loved these people, and he loved the work that he was doing among them. Uh, they were not merely his business or his livelihood. His, his commitment was to their spiritual development, and that was a commitment that overrode everything else. Secondly, insisting on his rights could have potentially interfered with the work of the gospel. For some people, that would be enough for them to say, forget this guy, he's just into it for the money. So Paul came to his decision based on the calculations that he made. And it's the same process, the calculating that he did, it's the same process we use when buying a car and determining what would be a reasonable car to buy, you know, given all the facts. But there was more to his calculations than worldly logic. There were other factors, and they were not material. They were spiritual. Last week, we talked about the psychological self. Uh, Paul calls it the psychikos, um, from the same Greek root from which, which we get psychological. And the psychological self is the self uh, that has been shaped by the world and is conformed to the world. But there's a larger reality than this world. And our calculations that, that we do are not just based on this world and the psychological self. They're, they include that larger reality. Albert Schweitzer uh, introduced the idea of intellectual mysticism. And he said, it attains to the power to distinguish between appearance and reality and is able to conceive the material as a mode of manifestation of the spiritual. It has sight of the eternal in the transient. And, and it's what the writer of Hebrews said, when he said, we know by faith that the universe was made of things not seen. That the spiritual is the, the, the proper origin and source of the material. That the eternal is first and then the transient. This is faith sight. And it impacts our calculations significantly if we have faith sight if we look not at the things that are seen but the things that are unseen all right way back at the start paul says am i not free am i not an apostle have i not seen jesus our lord paul's encounter with jesus probably lasted less than 10 minutes, but it changed everything radically. I mean, it was a 180-degree turn for Paul. We cannot live the life Jesus calls to. We cannot follow Paul and his teachings in our worldly psychological self. 
to try to do that would be to become a Pharisee, to become a hypocrite, uh, to become a pious, judgmental, unbending Cretan. No, we can't do it because we're only human. We need, like Paul, to see Jesus. We're told that 80% of the information that our brain receives is through our eyes. 80% of what our senses pick up from the world around us, 80% of that is through our eyes. If so, that it's, then it's really important that we develop our faith sight because if we just look at the things that are seen, faith will be impossible. We have to develop this other, this other vision. And this is what Jesus worked at. Jesus told his disciples, blessed are your eyes, for they see. And he said, I'm the light of the world. He, his light shines on everything. He wants us to see how his light shines on everything. William Barclay said, Paul does not say, I know what I have believed. He says, I know whom I have believed. All Christianity begins with this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not what we believe, what doctrines, what theology. It's who we trust our lives to. And in my prayer for us, I mean, it's, it's definitely my prayer for me, is that God will improve our faith sight. That, you know, sometimes if you just look at wherever you are, you just look at the terrain, the environment, the landscape, without focusing on anything in particular, but just taking in all of it at once with, with maybe an unfocused appreciation, even what's ever in your peripheral vision, just take it all in at once. That's a way of allowing light to shine on things and, and to improve your, your faith sight. I mean, it, it sounds ridiculous, but I mean, a, an artist can tell you, here's what you look for. Here's what you, you allow yourself to see. And they can, they can train us how to see things as an artist sees things. So I pray that God will improve our faith sight and that we will be able to see our world with new eyes. And in doing so, that we find enlightenment we find freedom, the freedom to make choices and to not live on automatic pilot or live by habit or live by what someone said to us a long time ago and we, we never got it out of our head and we still feel crummy because of it. That, that he'd allow us to live with new priorities, priorities that, that, may not, that may not be the priorities of our culture, that may go against the grain of our culture and not just our Southern California culture, but even our religious subculture, that, that we would have the freedom to walk with Jesus in all the ways he calls us to. My prayer is that we could 
imagine a life with God that's more than anything we have ever experienced before and that we would live that impossible life. Would you stand, please? And now may the Lord bless us, take away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.